0: the week of September 17th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, Episode 631, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay sperling Reich, And in Macondo,
1: I'm Michael Gills.
0: Oh God, what is Macondo? What is, What,
1: Macondo uh, what is is am I the, missing now? Macondo is the fictional town uh, that serves as the setting for 100 Years of Solitude, the masterpiece by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And why am I mentioning it? Because Dua Lipa made it their pick for the book of the month. All the fans of Dua Lipa that follow them to talk about books, uh, they're like, let's read 100 Years of Solitude. I'm like, that's awesome. You know, if, if Dua Lipa can get some people to read a great book like that, that's pretty cool. All these people have book clubs and you can sort of roll your eyes. But you know what? It's great. So, you know, I'm not going to make fun of it.
0: A couple things uh, regarding 100 Years of Solitude, of course, We talked about the woman who translated that that book. That's right. right, Recently. Grossman, yes. And I have not heard about 100 Years of Solitude or even thought about it in years. Okay. Great book. Now, now within the the, the last month, we, we talked about it a week or two ago. And then I'm at my daughter's back to school night and she's in AP Lit. And there it is up on the board. And the best part is. The teacher here's a whole classroom full of all of these erudite parents who think they have you know the best kids in in school because they're taking AP Lit as seniors, mm-hmm. and uh, and he he you know somebody said hey is that a hundred years of solitude on the, the the board there, and he said yes, and as a matter of fact it is, and it's a great book, and it was, uh, and I said and the translator recently passed away, and her name was.
1: <laughs> Did you score
0: brownie points? Yes, and he said, can you tell me what was important about that? I said, yes, she was the first translator to ever have her name on the cover with the actual, like, he was just like, the, the teacher was floored that somebody knew that. Well, Which is, by the way, and you mentioned Dua Lipa, is she going out on tour, by the way? Is she on uh, tour? I don't know. And I asked that because uh, I have to tell you, Michael, I probably won't be with the program very long. I won't be with Showbox for much longer. Yeah, no, I, I'm applying. Uh, Gannett is looking for uh, a reporter. And I applied for the job. There's two of them open. One to be a reporter uh, on Taylor Swift and her tour. And another to be a reporter on uh, Beyonce and her tour. And I'm pretty sure I'm a shoe in to get one of those jobs. These are just, their whole job, the whole job just entails covering those two artists and their tours. I, individually. Individually, right? Yes. Like
1: you, you're just doing Taylor Swift. You're just doing Beyonce. You're not doing Correct. both of them. Even this is not unusual. There are uh, newsletters and and journalists devoted to just covering the royals, which is basically about six people: Charles and Camilla and Harry and Meghan and William and Kate and their kids. But basically, you're covering just you know a handful of people. Uh, people Magazine had people devoted to just Donald Trump. When The Apprentice was the big show of the, of the era, uh, people have devoted people to just cover one big news-making person all the time. So it sounds a little silly, you think, but not when they're creating stories for you every day and, more importantly, driving traffic.
0: Yeah, well, I'm on the true, Dua
1: Lipa's right? website, and weirdly, there is no uh, like, clear link for her tour. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe she's busy at home reading books.
0: Yeah, who knows? I saw the Lumineers over the weekend. Uh,
1: oh, yes, you did. My, I had friends who
0: also saw them. How were they? They were actually really good. I've seen them before, but boy, they really know how to put on a show. They're, they're really good. And who would have thought, to be honest, remember when the Lumineers were like that second-rate uh, Mumford & Sons? <laughs> you know, like, oh, those hacks, they're just copying Mumford & Sons. Yeah, and who's laughing now? They're playing the Hollywood Bowl, and
1: Mumford and & Sons is... Well, it's Where? not a competition. They're both doing just fine. <laughs> 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 you know? Only only bad critics are, oh, they're just, you know, it's like, well, they're all everybody can do. I don't think they're um, touring Dua Lipa is touring at the moment, but I may be wrong. But I do know we're gonna hear about a lot about what's happening on this show today. That's true. I mean, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, I mean, let's face it,
0: we're like raging angry at Drew Barrymore. Oh. Yeah, well, and, and then we're applauding Drew Barrymore. Oh, well done, so, well yeah. done. By by the way, Ditto Bill Maher. We're embarrassed, by the way, uh, by Jan Venner of Rolling Stone. And but we're not embarrassed by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We'll explain what that all means. Plus, the strikes continue. And if you're playing along at home with canceled or not canceled, stock in Russell Brand is down, while stock in Jeremy Clarkson is up. I don't know when we became like the the social justice warriors. It's my fault. Is it really Venner?
1: It's not Jan Venner. It is Jan Wenner, and I I,
0: I used a Germanic... I was ready to be corrected. I I was like, I didn't know that,
1: but apparently I do.
0: Yeah. On Inside Baseball, now this is really exciting. We're going to be joined by Ann Thompson, the founder of Thompson on Hollywood and editor at large for IndieWire. She'll give us the latest on the Toronto and Telluride Film Festivals and bring us up to speed on the wackiest award season in memory. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines, But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz
1: to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office from around the world for the entire week. We're the only people that do that. And we're the only people that really strive to cover every area of the world that we can. A hit in France, a hit in Korea, a hit in Japan, wherever we can track it down. We want to know about it. And the number one movie around the world is The Nun 2, part of the Conjuring universe. It made another $74 million worldwide. It's at $160 million and counting, yet another huge hit for arguably, or definitely, the most successful and profitable horror franchise of all time. At number two is A Haunting in Venice, the Kenneth Branagh film starring Yaku Poirot and his mustache. That opened to about $37 million worldwide. In India, we have the big Hindu hit Jawan, which is doing great all over the world. It made $37 million this week, just like A Haunting in Venice, and it passed the $100 million mark. For the second week in a row, it's in the top 10 in North America. We've seen films from India debut in the top 10, but I think it's rare for them to stay in the top 10 for more than one week. Uh, It's perhaps happened before, but it's notable enough to say, hey, this movie is still at number six, so that's pretty great. Denzel Washington has another hit. Uh, Equalizer 3 made another $25 million this week. It's at $130 million worldwide. In Hong Kong, we have the thriller Dust to Dust. That had a good hold. It made $23 million this week. It's at $46 million and counting. Oppenheimer, another $22 million, $913 million worldwide. If you like little subgenres, it is the highest grossing biopic of all time. And we have predicted, planted our flag, or at least I have, and said this movie will make $1 billion worldwide. It's even made more money than Dunkirk in the United Kingdom. Uh, Dunkirk, of course, being by the same director. And I think that's amazing that such a British film like Dunkirk would be passed up by Oppenheimer. So that tells you how successful this movie really is.
0: I mean, I do wonder if uh, Warner Brothers regrets you know, getting out of business with Christopher Nolan. And I don't think they got out of business with Christopher he Nolan. You got, got out of business with them. I well, think you got of business with Well,
1: you got out of business by not consulting their artists and talking to them and announcing it worldwide before they had consulted or spoken with anyone. It could have been handled in a way that the acts would say, yeah, you've got a point and you've arranged it financially, so I'm not going to be angry at you. But they didn't. They just announced it willy-nilly. And Sound of Freedom is still making money. It jumped up a lot this week and made $21 million this week. That might be found money as it began opening worldwide a, a couple weeks ago. And I think some of that gross money coming in has just been slow to be reported. But anyway, we found another $21 million for Sound of Freedom. That's at $211 million worldwide. I have a friend who lives in Quito, Ecuador. Stay safe, Wolfgang. And. Uh, he says it's like the number one movie locally in Ecuador. Because I had it's
0: it's the number one movie in a lot of Latin American countries over the past two weeks.
1: So yeah. it's really been playing well in Latin American countries. Because yeah. it hadn't seemed to be bringing any money. I guess there's just been a delay. Because I'd seen it opening up in a bunch of territories and it wasn't seeming to register on comscore or elsewhere as having pulled in a lot of money but now we've got 21 million bucks this week after being way down into low single digits so clearly that money is rolling in now that's interesting at the same time the guy in the movie is based on tim ballard we now found out he left that sex trafficking fighting organization that he had helped create uh he left it in june because of multiple allegations against him from seven different women and the company's investigations into it and they have not released any details but say yes he has left their group as of june
0: yeah just last night i got something from like out of the blue i'm like why am i getting this email like who is this tim ballard guy Uh, and it was like his response to all of this news coming out you're on tim's email list (laughs) i don't know i'm like why am i how did i even get this email
1: (laughs) Well, there you go. Uh, Barbie is still doing great. Another $14 million, $1,417,000,000 worldwide. Expendables, the fourth in the Expendables franchise, has opened up in China. It's opening in China first, and it made $11 million over the weekend. My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, the edition directed by Nia Vardalos, That made another $11 million this week. Again, it's targeted towards older people. You know, anybody can go, but obviously it's going to appeal more to adults. And so it's $24 million after two weeks. We'll have to see if it can keep showing legs the way the first one did. Well, certainly not like that, but at least enough to make it a profitable story. Gran Turismo, based on a true story, that made $10 million, $10 million. That passed the $100 million mark. Probably not doing as well as they hope, but enough that this movie is going to be profitable for them when all is said and done. In China, we've got No More Bets, the big hit of the first half of the year. Another $8 million this week. It's just about to hit $550 million worldwide. Teenage Mutant, and I really want to see mm-hmm. this
0: movie. I mean, yeah. I, I watched the trailer, but the trailer was cut... Uh, for uh, native language speakers. So it is fast, which, <laughs> by the way, trailers usually are. So, you know, I'm, I'm not faulting it. It is just a very fast-cut trailer. And as you're reading all the, you're trying to follow, and oh, 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 and by the end of the trailer, you're like, I have no idea what just happened, but
1: I want to see the movie. <laughs> yeah, there's a movie in China called Ying Wu Sha, or Dancing Green is what it seems to have been translated into English. And it's a comedy, and it opened to about $3 million. I couldn't find a trailer and all I could find, you know, the vagaries of, of translating stuff into a second language, uh, the, the barest plot summary I could find out is, it's a comedy, and a woman is cheated on, and then they break up, and she makes new friends thanks to a parrot, and finds out that her two new friends have also been cheated on. It's not clear whether it's by the same person or not, but that's what Dancing Green or Ying Wu Sha is about. But you know, if you know what this movie is about or what's going on with that, tell us.
0: Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 866- What is our, what is our,
1: (laughs) I totally don't know. You don't know. it? Well, it's says yeah, something, something, something sand, isn't
0: it? A, no, it's it's eight 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 five six seven sand Eight 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 five six seven. Apparently, Sperling is
1: not ready to be president of the United States. Slipping of it, aren't we? It's World War II all over again. Uh, what?
0: Uh, at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle on Twitter, which I refuse to call X, which I guess I just did. Uh, and uh, I love the fact that uh, Anna Taylor-Joy... Mm -hmm. I was talking about Facebook. She said, you know, a couple years ago when Facebook was a thing, I was like, oh, wait, it's not not a thing thing anymore. (laughs) No,
1: not for a long time. Yeah. Yeah,
0: well, (laughs) facebook.com slash showbiz sandbox is where where the one person who's still on it can apparently like our page.
1: (laughs) Well, you can see the rest of the movies on our list. We we include almost everything that we can find info on. One new movie on that list is Sleep, a Korean horror comedy. It played at Cannes. I assume you didn't see it because I don't remember you mentioning it. I did not see it, no. Mm -hmm. But uh, 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 Bong Joon-ho, have I said his name properly? Is that his name? Yes. Yeah, Uh, he loved it. Said it's one of the best debuts he's seen in many years. It's obviously right up his alley. And I've seen other very positive reviews for it. It's made a modest uh, $7 million so far, but we didn't have info on it last week because there are no regular... Coverage in uh, in the trades for the Korean market. We'd love it if they would have regular coverage of Korea and Japan and China and any other big market. France, Spain, why not? You know, there's a worldwide box office. We'd love to hear about it. We are really dependent on what they cover sometimes because the charts for the Korean market don't come out for many days after uh, the weekend has happened, so we just can't include it on a timely basis in our show. But we do know Taylor Swift is coming. Her concert film has now booked sixty-five million dollars in pre-sales, so a one-hundred-million-dollar opening week is well within target. That's that's amazing. And John Wick Four, I know this week is opening in Japan. Why? Why does Japan always last? Why? I know every country has different schedules for school and football or w- events that you want to work around, but why is Japan always the last country? It seems to get big movies. They're a big market.
0: Yes, they are. Uh, I would say. Yes, China, of course, now is like number one or two market in the world, movie wise, depending on the year. But Japan's like number three. It used to be Japan was number two always, Mm -hmm. uh, and and Korea was right up there. Uh, You know, that is a question for Aya Umezu uh, with uh, Gemini. And and she, of course, runs a marketing firm over in in Japan, a movie marketing firm, uh, industry based. But uh, she she has her finger on the pulse over there. I do wonder. Why that? They're oh, you're right. It's it seems to be really, anecdotally really early. I don't know that it's they're really true. Late.
1: I don't know that it's true, but anecdotally, my impression is that many Hollywood movies arrive at Japan at the end. Is there less um, pirating maybe in Japan? People want to go to the theater so they respect and don't do piracy and therefore there's no problem in delaying it till the end? That's one possibility. But I also know that opening up this week, not just in Japan, but all over the North America, is Stop Making Sense. There was a one-night showing. Uh, Now there's a week in IMAX. So starting Thursday, if you're listening to this show, starting Thursday, September 21st, assuming we can get it out by then, they're showing Stop Making Sense multiple times during the week on IMAX. If you don't want to pay for IMAX, and again, it wasn't shot in IMAX, so that would be okay to wait. The following week, it will be in regular theaters starting uh, September 29. If you've never seen Stop Making Sense, believe me, it's Absolutely worth your time to see it on the big screen because it's a great film and it really deserves to be seen, right? You know, in a movie theater, you will you will love it even if you're not a big fan of Talking Heads. And I agree with you. Normally, I'm right there
0: with you, saying, "Look, if you did not shoot this movie in IMAX, I get the technology helps blow it up, especially now that there's digital, where you you lose almost nothing Mm -hmm. by blowing things up." But with the audio on this particular one. And the way IMAX does its audio, it's always, like, you know, basically, you know, its, spe- its speaker array is, mm-hmm. it's like being at a concert some, sometimes, which is why one of the th- reasons Christopher Nolan loves it so much. Uh, so and, you think
1: the audio boost is a, is a real reason to see it in IMAX, especially exactly. if, like me, you've got a pass and it doesn't matter, you're not paying extra. So there you go, worth checking out. And it's also exciting to know that when you're hearing this podcast, the Writers Guild of America will be talking to the AMPTP. Talks are resuming on Wednesday, September 20th. We're recording on Tuesday. It's a little late this week for us, but that's happening. and That's great to hear. More deals are being suspended everywhere. At Universal, they suspended deals with Lorne Michaels and Dwayne Johnson. Uh, So they're saving money and trying to put pressure on showrunners and people like that to have them go to SAG and WJ and say, come on, let's get a deal done. Now, it didn't work. And in fact, the WJ had set up a big meeting with top showrunners to get everybody on the same page and make sure everybody's concerns were heard. But that has been paused because they're back at the table with the AMPTP. And then there was big fracas over talk shows. Daytime talk shows are on a different contract. If you're a host of a daytime talk or any talk show on television, you are not under a SAG-AFTRA contract. So it's a different type of contract. That's why some shows will come back during a strike if they don't use WGA members or they go on even if they did use WGA members like The View. So a bunch of shows announced they were coming back Drew Barrymore, The Talk, Jennifer Hudson, Bill Maher, and so on. And people were getting upset. The National Book Awards had Drew Barrymore as their host for their annual awards ceremony, but they said, sorry, we can't do that. We have to respect writers. The only mistake Drew made was in posting a video to social media. And saying how bad she felt about all this. Uh, I'm sorry I'm doing this. And then she got a lot of grief because all these actors were saying, well, you don't have to. She's there's nothing I can do to make people happy about this decision. And they're like, well, you could not do it. <laughs> don't do the show. And after a huge pushback, uh, sometimes respectfully, like Deborah Messing, a bunch of people reached out and spoke. And Drew Barrymore said, you know what? I'm not going to start my show again. I'm going to wait. And then came everybody else. The talk is delaying their return. Jennifer Hudson is delaying her return. Even Bill Maher is delaying her return. Two things.
0: One. Wait, wait. Bill Maher is delaying her return?
1: He's delaying her return. Well, he now goes by her. Yes. Um, okay. So during the last writer's <laughs> strike, There were not two strikes going on at once. That's one reason it was a little different. You didn't have a SAG, AFTRA, and writer's strike at the same time. So when people started their talk shows again, actors could come on and promote their movies if they wanted to, uh, even though they were sort of crossing the picket line, you know, though talk shows were not technically necessarily, you know, it's now The writers are picketing The View. They would have picketed Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher and all these other shows. But during the last writer's strike, Drew Barrymore might be pointing out Oprah did shows, Jay Leno, Ellen, Jon Stewart, Jimmy Kimmel, Conan O'Brien, Stephen Colbert, they all went back to work. And in fact, Conan O'Brien was praised for how he made fun of... Uh, showing like how much he needs his writers. He did skits and things built around the idea of like, look what's missing when I don't have writers. Writers are important. So, uh, you know, her big mistake was sticking her neck out and of course doing it in the first place So she could wait and delay. But again, talk shows are under different contracts. They have to produce episodes. They wouldn't necessarily be crossing a picket line. And if they don't produce episodes, their shows can be canceled forever. That maybe you could argue is true for everyone. Well, it's a different contract. And if it's different, you know, it's not like uh, podcasts have to go on strike because the UAW is striking auto companies. You know, at some point, you have to respect the fact they're under a different contract. But I'm glad they all chose generally not to, to do this. I'm glad they all chose to delay as long as possible, though contractually, at some point, they may have to get back to work. And let's just remember how much we loved Jon Stewart and Conan O'Brien and Oprah if that happens.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's you're you're right. And by the way, Drew Barrymore should have pointed this out. She should have said, hey, guys, I'm a syndicated show, which means if I don't live up to my contract, which has nothing to do with SAG and nothing to do with the WGA, then- But
1: that's what everybody else risks, isn't it? That's what you risk if you're under contract. Not Bill Maher.
2: Not Bill Maher.
1: Well, I'm talking about the actors and the people and the writers who are on strike. They risk being fired forever, too. Right, Never Uh, having their job again. Their show will be canceled, and some shows have been canceled and will never be brought back. So that's what they risk. So they're risking the same thing. uh, You mean with talk shows? No, with with, in general, the people on strike. Well, yeah, that's that's a given. So she would be striking and saying, I'm going to respect the picket line because I hire WGA writers and I'm not going to cross the picket line, which there would have been in front of her show. I think the big difference is not her defense, but the fact that there were big-name celebrity actors calling her out. That didn't happen in 2008 because they weren't on strike. Nobody cared what the writers like me thought. <laughs> and so it was okay for them to cross that picket line and talk about it and you know su- support the writers because there weren't actors saying, well, I can't go to work. Why are you working? You know, When she's an actor already, that's when you got the grief, I think. That's, it's a dual strike. And therefore, it's a much bigger deal to stay back to work.
0: Yeah. Well. Also, I think uh, if you look back at the two thousand seven eight strike, mm-hmm. with uh, it was uh, David Letterman went, He owned his show, so he you know he was the production company, and he went to the WGN and got a you know kind of entered into a special agreement with them. Well, that's and different. Back then, yeah yeah back then late night was like a cutthroat war you know you had jay lena was still on back by the well, way back but they're then. all
1: in cutthroat they're all risking their careers and their jobs and the shows well, that they so, love by going on strike so yes it's once, no different than everybody else who's on the picket yeah. line i don't want to claim i'm just trying to paint a broader picture of how drew barrymore made her decision and how it is a different contract so if you don't like it's a different contract. Change the contracts next time and make sure TV talks show hosts are included in SAG-AFTRA deals. You know, and syndication shows, about. because and syndicated daytime, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, but once once David Letterman went back in two thousand seven eight, uh, he went back. First of all, six weeks in when the WGA was saying, "Look, we are making advances with you know we're we're in talks, things are moving forward." Uh, and then everybody else went back without writers. And they all kind of made fun of the fact. Conan, without a doubt, did, like, yeah. outdid everybody. Yeah. Uh, and they basically were like, look how much this show. sucks." I mean, we have to make these things, but look how much this sucks without. I'm going to ask some stupid questions and they're stupid because I'm the only one thinking of them.
1: Conan O'Brien, <laughs> by the way, one of the worst interviewers ever. He sat there with yes. his three by five card. It was just a terrible interviewer. Fine entertainer. Never got good at interviewing people. Sperling, you asked a question. Why the heck did we become the social I'll tell you why. Because we found out that Hollywood is rotten at the core and filled with people who were sexually harassing, assaulting, and raping people. And everybody knew it and nobody cared.
0: That's why. But here's the thing. That's why I say Hollywood should, I can't say should, they should switch from apples to oranges. Oranges have no core so that way you can't be rotten to the
1: core um, well I thought you could say oranges are not the only fruit but anyway um, we're talking no, I just, about I was Luke's trying to
0: make I was trying to make a core joke a, a fruit core joke I, oh, I how you. did I do how did uh, I, do, great, do you think I, I can take over for Russell Brand now that let's oh, face it he'll never Oh
1: absolutely I think your comedy level is right at his so oh. four women have stepped forward and told their stories that comic and actor and now edgy conspiracy theorist Russell Brand raped sexually assaulted and or abused them including one who was 16 years old at the time, which also I would point out is probably the age of consent. And Brand says all his sexual encounters were consensual, and he's being silenced because of his political commentary, which ranged back in the day from the very left wing to now, it's basically like COVID-19 conspiracy theories and far-right stuff. Uh, This was reported on by the Sunday Times, the Times of London, and Channel 4. Now, as with anybody, when something serious like this happens, people have to pause. You know, the only thing you can do is Respect the fact that he has not been found guilty in a court of law or in public opinion and say, all right, that four women is a lot, but we've just found out about this. You know, you have to assume he's innocent until proven guilty, but you also say, we need to pause whatever our dealings are with him. It's pretty complicated sometimes. He has a stand up tour, he has a book coming out. Uh, the B- YouTube has suspended ads on his YouTube channel where he has 6.6 million subscribers, and social media seems to be where he really. Uh, was making the money in recent years. It was being on social media and Instagram and Twitter and things like that, where he was really getting a lot of following with his far right stuff after years of being on the far left. This I'm I'm wondering about. The BBC has now removed episodes of shows that Russell Brand appears on, like shows like an episode of the game show QI, like he's on it, and they're like, well, we can't have that, and a podcast episode uh, from the Joe Wicks podcast that he appeared in as a guest. Like, that's like, well, wait a second. Are you trying to airbrush him out of history? Like, why would you have to remove, like, are you worried people will flock to a QI episode and you'll make money off the fact that he's now more notorious and therefore you find that unseemly? They said, we now realize that these don't meet up to our standards. Like, that's, that to me is a little weird. It's one thing yeah, I mean, to pause imagine your relationship. I if you're
0: on that particular, uh, you know, episode, you'd be like, really? Thanks. You yeah, know, yeah. I'm, there goes my residual. I'm not Russell Brent. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> Now, remember in Japan, we had uh, uh, the Japanese talent agency, Johnny and Associates. We've known for decades that the head of that company, who is now dead, uh, was sexually abusing and taking advantage of boys and young men, uh, hoping for fame or whatever, uh, preying upon them. Well, that company is finally paying a price for decades of sexual abuse and coercion by its legendary founder. Uh, anyway, starting in October, the company has announced it will forego its cut of any fees generated by talent with all the money going directly to the act. So they're like, we won't take any money. We're not going to make any money off people for the next year. It's, uh, from new stuff coming in. They've also formed a victim relief committee that will be overseen by three retired judges to determine compensation and the like for those abused. It's a start or the least it can do to rescue the company's reputation.
0: Well, and while we're on Japan, I know I just said Ayumezu uh is with Gemini Partners. She's mm-hmm. actually with Gemma Partners. Oh, okay. In in Japan. Okay. Which does does marketing in in the entertainment space. Maybe
1: they're not as much into astrology there?
0: I have no idea where you are Oh, I yeah. got it cuz Gemma got it. Or, right. or, or you could say astronomy, since wasn't the Gemini program, you know. And
1: before people think, wow, my God, everybody, it's like, this never ends. Like, who can you do business with anymore? Let's put this in perspective when it comes to Russell Brand or Harvey Weinstein or anybody. 99% of the people you deal with in the entertainment industry are never going to be accused by multiple women or men of sexual assault, abuse, or rape. So this is not, you know, it's a huge problem of sexual harassment and stuff. But the idea, like, oh, my God, who can you work with? It's like, you know what? the vast majority of actors are never going to have anything like this ever, ever come up. So no, it is not something that you can't worry, you know, everybody's getting accused. Like, no, they're not. It's a tiny subset of people. There probably are more people who should be brought to justice who are not, but the spotlight is simply pinpointing a handful of the worst abusers. And so no, your hands are not tied and it's not impossible To do work anymore with people. Uh, But that brings us to canceled, not canceled, this idea like, oh, everybody's getting canceled. Uh, No, they're not. Uh, A, there's no such thing. There's no committee or board that decides who gets canceled. That doesn't happen. Sometimes people say or do things, they pay a price. Other times they don't, such as Jeremy Clarkson. Now, pretty much everyone was disgusted by reality star host TV host Jeremy Clarkson's poisonous tirade against Meghan Markle. His column attacking Markle in the most grotesque terms was denounced even by those who don't really like Meghan Markle. Surely he would be canceled, as if. Clarkson continues to pen his column for Rupert Murdoch's tabloid The Sun, and while Amazon insisted it was likely going to cancel Clarkson's hit documentary series Clarkson's Farm, well, cooler heads have prevailed almost a year has passed since that column amazon realized you know what that show it's like our biggest hit in the uk and well gosh maybe they'll get a season 4 after all so never fear people may pay a price but it's rarely forever
0: wait i'm i'm confused did you say it's a big deal or not a big I deal i tried to say it oh okay well that said if that's not a big deal then maybe I don't know. What do you think about some of our stories in our big deal or big whoop section? Bring them on. Yeah, well, big deal or big whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. How do you like the fact that I called it both a section and a segment in less than 30 seconds? That's great. Pretty good. Uh, I'm just I'm, I'm I don't know. I'm not I'm not on it today. Our first story. Great Britain News, a.k.a. GB News, a.k.a. essentially the Fox News Network of the United Kingdom, has failed in its need to be impartial. Kind of like Fox News. A government review of the right wing news channel says a report in March failed basic journalistic standards. It happened during a show hosted by members of Parliament from the ruling Conservative Party who interviewed Chancellor Jeremy Hunt about the upcoming spring budget. Having politicians hosting shows, you know, rather than being guests, has been problematic from the start, as has GB News, which has been cited for breaking the rules two times in the past and with six other investigations ongoing. The channel launched two years ago. The segment in question failed to offer any opposing views, criticism or policy alternatives. It would be like having a show, by the way, like, say, on Fox, okay, hosted by Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, interviewing cabinet members of the Trump administration. And by the way, no, Rupert Murdoch, you should not be taking notes, okay? That is not a suggestion,
1: <laughs> okay? Big deal or big whoop? Uh, this is a big deal. This is like fascism. They're telling people what they can say on the air. That's insane. That's crazy. Thank God we never had that in the U.S. Oh. Wait, what? Pardon me. Uh, the Fairness Doctrine. That once required news programs to be balanced. The FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, said in 1949, just as TV was gathering steam, said anyone with a broadcast license for TV or radio, um, I'm not sure how it applied to newspapers, if at all, uh, you had to have balanced news coverage. That regulation, of course, was scrapped in 1987 by the Reagan administration. So before, if you did a news story, you had to be balanced. It didn't mean you had to show both sides every time, but you had to strive to present factual information with uh, the controversy presented, if any, in the proper context. Uh, Well, the Reagan administration dumped that. I voted for Reagan, by the way, in 84. And Rush Limbaugh, no coincidence, began to be nationally syndicated in 1988.
0: Right. And that's exactly everybody points to that being the hello, Fox News. It took 15 years for Fox News to kind of break out and become its its own thing, of course, and launch, frankly. But uh, now look, now look at what you got. It's a mess. And by the way, speaking of messes, just weeks after CIA was sold by a private equity firm, the legendary management company Brillstein, formerly Brillstein Gray, uh, they have been added to the portfolio of Wasserman. Brillstein looked around and decided it needed to be, you know, bigger or at least purchased by someone who was bigger. Wasserman's portfolio is strong on sports, marketing and athletes. They expanded into music with artists like Brandy, Carlisle, Drake, Billie Eilish and Coldplay. Now with Brillstein, it reps people like Brad Pitt, Tiffany Haddish, Rami Malek and the like. Brillstein wants to push even further into concert creation and Wasserman has the deep pockets to make that happen. It recently signed a first look deal with Paramount and has projects in the works for Netflix, Disney, and Amazon. I mean, I always forget it's not Amazon; it's Prime, it's Prime TV or Prime Video or whatever they're. You know what? It's Amazon. Okay, that's it. I'm sticking to it. It's Twitter, Amazon. Twitter. Twitter. Exactly. <laughs> Stop changing your names, people. Big Prince. Deal, a big whoop.
1: Prince. Uh, this is a big whoop. To me, but maybe it's a big deal to you. I will say, however, uh, Brillstein wants to go further into content creation, not necessarily concert creation, but yes, content creation. Uh, But is this a big deal to you? Or is this just more of the consolidation that is bad for artists, bad for talent, bad for the industry? Or maybe it doesn't matter. Yeah, I,
0: I, I think, you know, this is the kind of thing that ha- it's a cycle, right? I mean, if you recall, this is how we started, right? MCA, the A in MCA records, it the was artists, Yeah, was artists, you know, and they said, <laughs> so, no good.
1: Stop that. Yeah, bad boy. And
0: speaking of Wasserman, it was Lou Wasserman who had to make the decision. Look, you're either an agency or you're you're a record company and you're a, a movie studio. What's it yeah. going to be? And he was like, all right, fine. Is we'll this is that this that. his
1: son or grandson? I forget. I don't know. I,
0: I always get that confused.
1: Well, I will say uh, this. Uh, Rush Limbaugh really caught fire in 19, early 90s. So it was really 92, 93, where he really became such a huge force um, in radio. So it took a few years after he launched in 1988. And it was 96 when Fox News launched. Um, by the way, Casey Wasserman is the grandson of Lou Wasserman. He founded Wasserman Media Group in 1998. Yeah,
0: I, I yeah okay. So, uh,
1: well, thank you for clearing that
0: up. And I'm before anybody writes in. I know MSNBC can be biased as well here in no. The US. MB- MSNBC
1: does not peddle lies and misinformation. They do have but opinion shows. But that's where I was they, they, yes. they 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 no, that's they do not present. You don't watch MSNBC and become dumber. Uh, they Correct. they 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 do not have the need to provide a right-wing voice under the fairness doctrine, but they do a pretty good job of having people in the moderate center and whatever. They don't have fascists on all the time, but no, they do. They do prevent a balanced news show. I don't watch it. I don't have time for any 24 hour news channel because life is too short, but no, they are not the same as Fox news.
0: Yeah. I mean, just watching cable news lately, it's just like, Oh my
1: God. Ever, ever. Yeah. This is a striking uh... hurricane. There's no reason to watch breaking news on cable television.
0: Well, okay, let's let's talk about uh, about uh, Disney then, maybe because lately Disney has been dissing its own companies. Hmm. Maybe cable cable channels, remember them? We were just talking about them two and a half seconds ago. Uh, they are the wave of the past. Okay, that's according to uh, this guy Disney. named Bob Iger. Disney. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe ABC isn't such a, a hot property anymore. Maybe other people should buy a chunk of ESPN. That didn't go so well. So now Disney is talking up some of the companies it actually owns. As it has said before, Disney is greatly expanding its cruise lines, hoping to double capacity in two years by adding three more ships and a new home port in Singapore to cater to the Asian Pacific market. Theme parks, that's another area of positive news. So Disney just announced it would be spending $60 billion over the next 10 years on theme parks around the world. That is billion with a capital. B, not T, not M, B as in billion. <laughs> but uh, in any case, they've got enough land right now to build the equivalent of seven new Disneyland parks. By the way, Disneyland, I should say, Tiny. is the smallest of all yeah. the parks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, Disneyland can fit in the parking lot of Disney World. So just to give you some sense. They've
1: got about a thousand acres of of, of space that they can expand into, not to mention areas where they can build a new ride uh, by tearing down one that they believe has become outdated. So there's a lot of growth in not just a new land, you know. Well, Disney stock has dropped 3% to just
0: $82 near its nine-year low, just under $80. So big deal
1: or big whoop? Yeah, I, you know, it's a big deal because what do investors want? They say, here's an area of strength. We're going to invest in it. And they're like, oh, really? <laughs> so it's like, I'm not sure why the stock would drop on this news. Do they think $60 billion is too much? Not enough. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. When you think about $60 billion over 10 years, that's $6 billion a year they have theme parks all over the world. If they build two rides, that's like $2 billion. (laughs) You know, it doesn't take a lot of time to add up to $6 billion, especially when you divide it by how many properties do they have? 10? Disneyland Paris, Disneyland Tokyo, you know, they got a lot. So uh, that's not even that much money necessarily. And that's an area where they've been doing great. Uh, My question is, uh, their theme parks, I'm not sure if this is worldwide, but they, they say they've reached 100 million people a year. I know at Disney World, they're basically at capacity. And one thing they talked about to promote was like, look, we're not going to push it to maximum capacity. We are going to limit our parks so that you're not overwhelmed every time you step in the door and you're shoulder to shoulder, which is one reason why they need more lands to try and give people new things to do so they can handle more capacity and give you more things to do so everybody's not standing in line at Space Mountain or whatever the latest theme park ride is. So capacity is my problem, and there's no other way to deal with capacity than Building new rides where underperforming rides are existing, and opening up new lands like their Avatar and Star Wars land, which didn't go so great, but they'll work on that. So I, I don't know, know. It seems like a reasonable thing to do to me. Your huge success story of the last decade is theme parks, and they're putting more money into it, unless they think their strategy is wrong. I couldn't find out any explanation for why this would cause investors to turn up their nose.
0: Well, I just think uh, you know, it's it's just a. It's more of a trend than this particular news. I will say uh, Disney World had to close recently because of a bear
1: sighting. (laughs) It oh, I know, yeah. That is, yeah. It's a like, bear what? somehow got into and it wasn't the country bear jamboree. It was like a bear. <laughs>
0: yeah, like a real bear. Yeah, like uh, can you imagine all those kids telling their parents, No,
2: I saw a bear, mommy?
0: It's like, no, no, kid, that's that's a animatronic, don't worry about <laughs> it. You look up and no, the kid's no, riding bear. the bear. The kid is riding the bear. <laughs>
1: hey. <laughs> oh well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank I don't know God if you've ever been on one hurt. of those Disney cruises. Yeah, well, true. Thank you. No. Uh, I I've been on one of those Disney cruises. I was dragged onto one uh, against my will. I was like, this is going to be the worst week of my life. I was grumbling the whole time uh, that on my way to this cruise, best vacation
2: ever. <laughs> these Kids guys, were entertained
0: all day long. They knew exactly. They said, yeah, we know you don't want to be here. So we're <laughs> going to make this the best vacation of your life. I was like, oh, my God, they had totally got this down. There are adults that go on these Disney cruises. Of course that do it without kids because they know that there's like a whole like adult section where kids aren't allowed. And it is the best. It's totally empty. You can always get a, a chair at the It's just, it was, they know how to do it. Now, these are licensed. They basically, you know, what? have an operator. Yeah, these are, What they have an operator run these for them. Uh, uh, hmm. Now it's a private uh, what? operator that runs. They, they the don't Disney just license cruise.
1: their name out. They have total control over every element. Of oh yeah, oh, absolutely. The- this is not yeah. where they just slap their name on something and someone else does whatever they want. I I, I don't know how independent that is at all. I'm not sh- I'm not sure about that. Are you sure? Because that doesn't yeah, sound like yeah. Disney in the least. I, I mean, really, let's put it that's way. not Disney. They have total control over what's happening on those ships. No way do they relegate oh, yes. and let someone else do whatever they want and just slap and give license their name out. That is not what's happening here. I don't. I don't know what you mean by independent people doing it. Well, but, write in. Let us know if you happen to know. Write yeah, in and let yeah, us know. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Now in the United States, music revenue hit a record high, and I know you know we're faulted. This is the this is the information we have. okay? If you wanna, honest, want us to report on music sales in Korea, please let us know. We will. Yes. The money flowing in, a, in, in the United States amounted to $8.4 billion for the first six months of 2023. That means the year is on track for $16.5 billion in gross revenue, or as I like to call it, 1987. Uh, where's the money coming from? Music streaming, of course, which adds up to almost 85% of the total. That includes subscriptions to Spotify, ad revenue, YouTube videos, Peloton payments, which, by the way, people, just get a bike, okay? Just get a bike for the price of Peloton. You could buy a bike. Uh, TikTok, iHeartRadio, and so on. Uh, This segment grew faster than it did in 2022. The total number of paid subscriptions also grew, but not as quickly. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Not as quickly, okay. They hit 95.8 million, okay, paid subscribers in all. Family plans, by the way, count as one subscription, okay, so that's kind of important. Physical formats generated almost $900 million for the first half of the year, with vinyl accounting for more than 70% of that total. Go figure. What's old is new again. So more money than
1: ever and more subscriptions than ever. Big deal or big whoop. Uh, It's a big deal. So uh, obviously, streaming, 85% of the total. And when you're looking at physical vinyl is 70% of the total. So it's vinyl and streaming. And of course, streaming is dominated by subscription services. There's big chunks coming from YouTube video and Peloton and all that. But the majority of that is coming from streaming subscriptions and, and stuff like that. Now, revenue is growing faster than subscriptions. They're still growing, but revenue is growing faster. Yes, because they finally raised prices. Everybody finally raised prices within the last year and, uh, and, or slightly beyond that. And we still haven't seen the full effect of Spotify's increase. Why is that important? They raised prices and added more customers. Whatever churn there was, they more than made up for it. So they did not lose a bunch of customers by raising prices. Now we've got almost 100 million subscribers in the US. That's like one out of three people. And when you that, figure that's out that's like cable household numbers.
0: Well, no, cable was up to like eighty <laughs> percent,
1: eighty five. Well no, I once former, a st- former cable household I 10%. made a stupid bet No, I'm saying at their peak cable was still no. only like 85%. I stupidly once made a bet about penetration of VCRs and not realizing there weren't, there were, I figure who wouldn't have a VCR? That's crazy. Not realizing there are actually homes without TVs. So I lost that bet. Sorry, Ron. So yeah, a third of the country has at least one subscription. And of course, with family plans, like you and I are on a family plan, That means even more of the country is already covered. We're at peak subscription level. So the only way to increase revenue is basically keep those people happy so you don't lose subscribers and charge more money. So it's going to become a mature market. So people need to relax and just go, it's okay to be a mature market. You've got a third of the country signed up for a subscription. It doesn't mean you need to raise subscription prices to $50 a month. It just means you've got a steady amount of revenue coming in, expand in other countries over around the world, but do not think that you have to constantly increase revenue because other than inflation, you're you you're peak, you're mature and they're going to freak out 5 years from now, "Oh, it's not growing." It's like, "No, everybody's got one already. How much more can you get than 100 million people with a music subscription?" So
0: just chill. I, you know out. what? I, sh- I should put a a tag on this yeah, because they, I know 5 years five from now, years they will from now be we're going to be talking about, about
1: how awful it yeah. is because everybody's already got a music subscription. And by the way, physical media, I have purchased 3 CDs in the last 6 months. So, I hadn't okay. bought a CD in years, and now suddenly I've bought a few for some one reason or another. So there you go. One old guy who used to
0: write about this stuff is Jan <laughs> Wenner, not Venner. Venner. He gave a, Venner, you're going to talk about Jan Venner? That's what I want to know. Well, he gave an interview to the New York Times. Of Mistake. course,
1: he is the, the, the founder <laughs>
0: and publisher of uh, Rolling Stone. Not anymore. Uh, not anymore. Not anymore, but yeah. yeah. Uh, and now, in this interview, he discussed his new book titled The Masters. It includes new and archival interviews he's done over the decades with people like Bono, Mick Jagger, Bob Dylan, and Bruce Springsteen. Who could object? Yeah, they're all, you know, white men. So, uh, and the no, they're all said, masters of the, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the viewers said, well, what's up with that? How come all these white men? Where's Tina Turner? Instead of just saying, well, you know, these are the best interviews I've done. And unfortunately, I, I just never did great work with artists like Joni Mitchell or Marvin Gaye and the like. Winter said no women are intellectually deep enough. No black men were articulate enough for what they what he wanted. I mean, <laughs> seriously. What are you thinking? They weren't deep thinkers on the level of the masters included. Uh, well, I guess that's a major oops because the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announced the ne- very next day. The very next, day. they were like, "Should we meet or just no? No, we're not meeting. Just no." Winner, you're off the board. Uh, he was on They did, on the board meet. Of they the did meet, and he got to make okay. his
1: case. They no, they did meet. So okay. Let's not well, say I'm, that. I, well, I'm well, I'm I'm joking
0: around. Hopefully, people can tell that uh, Vetter also well, no, apologized that's for not a joke. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, Vener apologized for his poorly worded comments. I'd say big deal or big whoop.
1: It's a big whoop, of course. Who cares? But it's so sad and ridiculous. <laughs> and that's not even the worst thing he said in the interview. It actually is, It actually is, of course. But the, every journalist is like, what? He said, well, of course, I shared the transcripts of every, all these interviews with these artists so they could look them over. And the writer was like, really? <laughs> He's like, yeah. He goes, he goes, "Yeah, I mean it's not a it's not a confrontational interview. I'm not trying to get him. I'm not speaking to a world leader. I want to have a deep conversation and so I build that trust by letting them look He's like, "No, you can't." He's like, "Well, there's different. It's not that type of interview." And the guy said, "There aren't two types of interviews." And he goes, "Yes, there are." And so I'm outraged that he would say, "Here, Bono, check out the interview and make sure you're cool with it." At the end of this interview, this Q&A, Jan Wenner says, by the way, I'd love to see the transcript. And the guy's like, Yeah, right. He goes, Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, after it's published, God, whatever, God, kill me. It's like, actually, you would have liked to have seen that that interview. So you can say, <laughs> oops, oops. And maybe I shouldn't have said that. And I would also point out, beyond the insanity and the idiocy of his comment. And and it's his own fault because the writer was not trying to catch him. And in the introduction to this collection of interviews, he says, women and people of color, he didn't say that, but whatever, we're not in my zeitgeist. And he's like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> he's like, well, you know, they're not articulate. I mean, Artica is such an old slur against black people. It's insane that he would be that stupid to not cloud his racism with some other term. And again, all he had to say was, these are just the people I happened to talk to over the years. You know, they're obviously a million people in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who deserve to be there, and I've never interviewed them. You know, this is not a list of all the only people who matter. These are just the ones I, you know, it's so easy to answer that question. But I would also point out Bono, Dylan, Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead, Mick Jagger, John Lennon, Bruce Springsteen, Pete Townsend, no queer people. Jan Wenner's gay, and he doesn't have a single person who's bi or, you know, queer or in any way, shape, or form. How sad is that? you know that should be in his wheelhouse at least so what are you gonna sad ridiculous commentary by jan Winter.
0: well michael i do know somebody who is actually what was the word you used articulate i think was the word you used that was jan that was right right well jan used it but uh, I, I know somebody who's articulate and i'm extremely excited we're going to be talking to them during inside baseball inside baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing We'll explain what they mean for the business, and more importantly, how they affect you. Now, every award season has its own strange rhythm and unexpected twist, but surely this year's movie award season will be the strangest of all. Actors and writers can't promote certain movies while the strikes continue, which hopefully won't be long, but probably will be. No one is quite sure which movies will even be released, and publicists aren't sure what movies they'll be handling. When they'll be released, or even how they'll be able to promote them to voters. It's kind of crazy. And at the heart of this madness is, and this is what I'm excited about Ann Thompson, creator of Thompson on Hollywood and editor at large at IndieWire. Anybody who's been listening to our show for any period of time knows that we love talking to her on this program. She's an award season expert and influencer. And since Anne can tell you what, which movies she loves, which movies are getting buzz, and the happy occasions the, you know, where those two meet is, is nice. Uh, she's back from Telluride in Toronto, or as I like to call it, the Fall World Tour. And joining us to clean up this whole mess, kind of like <laughs> this intro, uh, is Anne Thompson. So Anne, thank you for taking Hello. the time to join us. And uh, I, I know we're here to talk about some festivals, but first, probably the most important question on everybody's mind right now is, what film is going to win best picture? Is it going to be Oppenheimer or Barbie? Which one?
2: I think Oppenheimer is the front runner. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I would agree with but you. But they'll it both be nominated?
2: That's all the hallmarks of seriousness, yeah. overdoeness, and success. I mean, it's just such an extraordinary, serious movie that in fact, no one but Chris Nolan could have gotten made and made as well. And as, as, um, It, 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 Barbie lacks a certain gravitas, I would suggest to you. I I hope it does really well, though. I want, I want, it's interesting because Greta Gerwig and, and Christopher Nolan have both been nominated twice in, in, in different ways. It is not, you'd think that, that, uh, Chris Nolan would have been. I mean, they've been nominated for screenplay. They've been nominated for director, but you would think that he would have been nominated more, that, that, that he and Greta wouldn't be the same, you know, basically. Right.
1: Comic, and, comic and book so, movies, sci fi. But uh, I, I don't know. Barbie has a lot of gravitas when America Ferrera gets going.
2: I have been debating with people whether she would get into supporting actress. That's a really good question. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's, competitive that yeah.
1: category. Now tell us this award season, is it as crazy and confusing as it seems behind the scenes as it is out you know out in the
2: Well, oh, let's get Toronto. Who won yeah. the you know, who won the the Critics Choice Award? It's so interesting. We use the Critics Choice Award as a bellwether for something that's gonna get nominated for the Oscar. It doesn't mean it's gonna win, but it usually in eleven year it's been eleven years since something didn't make it to the best picture for the, race. For the
1: audience but, winner, yeah.
2: The audience winner the People's Choice Award. So uh, this year, it's American Fiction uh, starring Jeffrey Wright. And uh, I still didn't get to see that. Uh, so it, 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 I have to say that wasn't an obvious front runner for the Oscar going in. It well, if there very-
0: was ever a year to miss Cannes, it would have been this year because every good film at Cannes was in Toronto. So, I mean, even... I did the- a lot of
2: catching up at Telluride and Toronto. So I caught up with the zone of interest, which is extraordinary. And will do very, very well, um, whether it's the UK entry or whether it gets into other categories. I think I think that's a, you know, Sandra Huller, I would imagine, is is a pretty good candidate for Best Actress, whether it's for that or Anatomy of a Fall. She's in both. Um, right. Th- there were lines around the block in Toronto for Anatomy of a Fall because they made the mistake of putting it in a tiny theater. Hmm. And and uh, you know they sort of miscalculated the demand there. Um, well, I guess
0: maybe they that thought, well, won the
2: Palm Door. You know, they won the
0: Palm Door. Yeah,
1: I, I guess gonna, I was thinking about the procedure of the fall award season because normally people would be planning lots of events where actors would glad hand uh, people and they'd have their strategy mapped out. And this year, we're not even quite sure what movies are going to be released or what's going to be pushed back. They may not right. have the actors to promote them. So I would assume behind the scenes they're thinking, "What do we do? How do we do this?"
2: Well, they moved Poor Things back to Searchlight. Moved Poor Things back to December. That is the front runner coming out of the festivals. It is the from Venice to to Telluride. It it, it is extraordinary, and uh, it's going to do very well with the Academy on every level on every front, including Emma Stone and and Mark Ruffalo, who is hilarious. I mean, brilliant, brilliant. They're both brilliant. They're both and uh, r-
0: poor, poor Things being the Yorgos Lanthimos. Uh- film, uh, starring Emma Stone, as you mentioned, Willem Dafoe and Mark Ruffalo.
2: So they're going to push that back to December. So we have to assume hopefully, uh, I'm assuming that what's going to happen is that it's just a question of delaying the inevitable. Uh, the the, somewhere between October and November that strike, the strike will get settled. The strikes will get settled. I mean, they are going back to the table with the writers shortly. Um, and then we, yeah, and, and we're going to see, uh, a big glut of actors just suddenly hitting the rough finish, so, uh, making up for lost time. It's just going to be inevitable. Whenever that is, it will. Ha- There's time. I don't know why everybody's so worried about it. Really, it's it's like the the festivals themselves were quiet, you know, but there were a yeah. lot of actors around who who had waivers or interim agreements whatever you want to call them and uh you know from Ethan Hawke and Maya Hawke and Laura Linney for his movie Wildcat which was for sale or or um Memory which played very well with Jessica Chastain and Peter Skarsgård who won an, an award in Venice uh acting award and, you know there are a lot of uh there were people around talking um it wasn't uh you know Viggo Mortensen and Vicki Krebs from this movie that they were trying to sell, a, a Western called The Dead Don't Hurt. I mean, there were people around. It wasn't void of, of actors.
0: But you know what what's, uh, surprised me a little bit is that you didn't see a lot of acquisitions at Toronto. Sometimes, I mean, it's not a big acquisitions festival.
2: Well, the Richard Linklater sold for $20
1: million. Hitman. That, that was Hitman went to Netflix.
2: That, oh, that, okay. I, I don't today? Today? Yesterday. Yeah, oh, okay. They,
1: so that, yeah, yesterday. But, yeah, and, yeah. and of course, their big award season, hopeful, is probably Rustin, the biopic about Bayard Rustin, uh, which uh, looks very promising. I have not seen All that. Holman
2: to Bingo is supposedly the, the, the play there for them. Yeah. I don't think Nia played as well as they would have liked, uh, but the actors are still strong. Yeah. Annette Bening and, and Jodie Foster will do well, I think.
0: And now there's all this controversy over, did not, you didn't, you know, Diane did she actually do the swim? And I'm like, what? What? Like, are we arguing over that? Okay.
1: No, that's just, that's arguing. an old thing that she has a, a complex position in the world of, you know, endurance swimming, but that's not right. any new news. So I don't think that would be a slight against the movie because it's- There's
2: a big story in the LA Times, but- I think it will be an actor's play in the end, anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it's an eventing. who has been nominated four times, I believe, and and is overdue. And and so yeah. You know, and Jodie, of course, is is beloved. So we'll see. Again, that supporting actress category is is competitive, but Netflix has plenty to play with. They get, they've got coming up in New York from from Cannes. They have May December um, opening night. Now
0: April. it'll be interesting because they kind of the the academy coming maestro yeah maestro uh, is pardon. the
1: only con film um, uh, pardon me the only film man. from netflix that gets an extended play in theaters everybody else has this sort of vanity run of a week or whatever before they hit streaming uh, maestro is the one that they're getting a full month from right before thanksgiving to right up to christmas when they put it onto their streaming service that clearly makes that their big push i would think for oscar hope
2: Yes, and given that that's true, um, it it got a, a. I I mean, you tell me. My impression was that it got a mixed response out of this. Yes.
0: yeah, exactly. That was the the or, response.
2: Not one hundred percent positive, and and more for uh, Carrie Mulligan, which which had been sort of forecast in in the ad, advertising materials. You know, you could see that they were pushing her more.
0: Yes, I, I would agree with that. Seen
2: it and talked to me about it. Said that the. The nose was a distraction.
0: <laughs> well, because you know what he looks like. And, and it's like, it's not enough uh, makeup to kind of hide you entirely. And so it's just one prosthetic that kind of then stands out.
2: So the other movie that did really well in Toronto in terms of audience play was The Holdovers from Alexander Payne with Paul Giamatti as this curmudgeonly professor who has to take care of these students over the holidays. It has
1: a very 70s vibe, it feels like. People say...
2: Absolutely. Screwed. But what's so great about it is that it's it's one of those movies where everybody's behaving badly, but you love them and you care about them and you're trying to root for them. And it, it ends up being about lonely Christmas orphans. <laughs> and, and somehow, I think there's a little lonely Christmas orphan in all of us, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Please, sir, may I have another? Um, <laughs> that,
1: somebody said it, it looked like it could have been a lost film by Hal Ashby.
2: Absolutely. It was lovely. Uh, lovely. He did a great job with that.
1: That was the runner up for the Audience Award. And third That's- place was the Miyazaki animated film, The Boy and the Heron. Did you see that movie?
2: That was lovely. Opening night. It was so beautiful. I was so happy to see it. Um, it'll be the, I will give uh, Spider Man's. Um, into the Across, Spider-Verse. Spider-Verse, whatever that is. It, it will give that movie a, a run for its money in animation. And so
0: just going back to, to Netflix for a second, I, I had not read yet, and I'm about a day behind, which makes sense, uh, that Hitman went to Netflix. I kind of look at movies that go to Netflix, like Fair Play, which went to Netflix out of Sundance, and I kind of go, really? Like what? How are these filmmakers, they know that they're not going to get a theatrical run, And the Academy is trying to force a theatrical run by saying, well, you can't just be, you know, a one week run in New York and L.A. It has to be in 22 different markets. And I mean, is that really going to going to force Netflix to release these movies theatrically?
2: You know, it was interesting when that news came out, Emily Feingold, who's the PR uh, corporate PR person at Netflix, insisted to me. That they would fulfill that in in most cases of, with their big Oscar uh, contenders, that it wasn't a big deal for them.
0: Oh, all right. Well, then so, maybe. But now I know you, you mentioned that that you you know you don't you're not going to consider a, a a foreign film a front runner in the international film category unless you've personally seen it. Uh, what did you get to see? I, I know I saw the Teacher's Lounge. Uh, that's good. Th- directed by... Yeah, Il- Ilker Satak about a teacher in, a, in German schools who kind of…
2: A very good movie, very strong, yeah. very, very intense.
0: Yeah, it kind of puts the audience in the seat of judge and jury. Yeah. It's kind of a very tense movie. And then I saw a movie that was, you would think it's political, but not political because it's a black comedy from a very unique place called Bhutan. Called the Monk and the Gun, and you would think
2: what that movie? It's it got no play that I heard it did. of. It did I think it'll get picked up? It, it, okay. It'll get picked up, and it is the Bhutan entry, which helps. You know, it's, it's a uh, it's a movie about
0: uh, Bhutan. The King of Bhutan abdicates the throne and says, "Hey, let's hold a, an election." There's only one problem: Bhutan had, was one of the last countries to get the internet, and uh, by the way, nobody knows how to vote. So
2: and, television. Just, television. and television,
0: television, yeah. And so they're you know in 2006 they're out there kind of going hey here's a TV here's the internet here's how you vote and it took these peaceful villages and turned them into like Fox News versus M- MSNBC. Hardison.
2: It's a good <laughs> yeah. movie. I, I, he he's he's got a real I think this filmmaker has a real skill for for showing us ourselves from this different perspective and it, because he has the ability to show what true innocence looks like um, um, and the, it's about this. This monk who wants a gun and his, sends his acolyte out to find a gun for him, it's a, it's, and there's a gun collector who wants this gun, and, and everybody's fighting for the gun, and you don't know why. The monk wants the gun. And when that is revealed, it's quite a thing.
1: It's really good. <laughs> it's a and it's an interesting year for the international race, of course. The UK may be submitting the German language film, The Zone of Interest. Japan may submit the German director Wim Wenders movie. And France may do. submit Anatomy of a Fall, which Mon Dieu is substantially in English. So that's a...
2: I can't imagine because they... The- The Academy itself, as you guys know, you know, goes in there with a stopwatch and figures it out Mm -hmm. exactly. And the people um, behind Anatomy of a Fall insist that it's primarily in French, (laughs) Uh, but the experience of it, it feels like a lot of it's in English.
0: Well, that's part of the point of the movie as well. They make a point of it in the movie. Well, I've you've seen because the film. Because
2: she's German and so she's an outsider mm-hmm. and she isn't one of them. The one, the character played by Sandra Fuller who is a German actress.
1: Well, as Sperling right. said, you you, you you, mentioned in your roundup, I haven't seen a final roundup for Toronto yet, have I? Uh, if, if I did, I missed it because I've been looking for it. I read some of your coverage while you were there but I didn't find a roundup the way you did. I kind
2: of did it. Ryan and I did it on the podcast. Ah, I, su- okay. I suspect we should do something more. Yeah. Well, and we've been updating our different, uh, Marcus Jones and I have been updating our different predictions.
1: So we have a link chart. to some of your stories and your coverage of Telluride and the international Oscar race, as Sperling mentioned, you have said that you won't dub a mil- movie a frontrunner for the international Oscar race until you personally have seen it. Uh, do you just
2: do, all of the categories? Is that and that never, was
1: my question? So you want you're like I ain't calling you a frontrunner till I've seen you.
2: that's why Is that because you just don't
1: believe the buzz? You're like I got to see it. That's right. Good, good job. So yeah, you've got you've got like eight or nine frontrunners: Anatomy of a Fall, uh, The Indesirables, The Monk and the Gun. The Vim Vendors movie Perfect Days, the Denmark film The Promised Land, the Taste of Things, that great cook food movie from France, uh, the Teachers Lounge from Germany that liked, and the Zone of Interest. What's your feeling right now? Do you, I mean Zone of Interest? It's got a Holocaust theme that I put my money down on that right now to get the long odds.
2: Make it the UK does submit it. The people from from behind the movie were reassuring me that it would be submitted by the UK, but it hasn't happened.
1: And if, you, and if you do have a Holocaust theme, that really helps you. Agreed. Yeah. You know it. So are you and feeling you, frenzied? Are you feeling like, oh my God, I'm going to have 800 roundtables and 800 events in November and December if and when the strikes end?
2: We're going to do some documentary interviews. That's always a race that I'm really interested in um, and it's picking up. Finally, some people have actually picked up some of the films that didn't have distribution, so that's Paul becoming
1: Paul Simon. More,
2: Paul Simon. I would like to. I would like to suggest that everybody go see Cassandra, which just opened. Oh, which yes, played All You Right After Sundance, and it's an extra. This is a case where Gael Garcia Bernal should be out front and center, and everybody should be talking about how it's an Oscar contender for his performance. Out being and he's a good there. word. Out you know, being he, a good word. He can't be it. <laughs>
1: no, I, I like, can't wait to see it's it. It's an
2: amazing performance I, that he gets.
1: We've got a link to your story in our show notes about Cassandro. Uh, made me really can't wait to see the movie. Did you
2: see yeah. any
0: of it the has documentaries? It bad bunny in- for
1: God's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: did,
1: did, did you see any of the documentaries in,
0: in Toronto?
2: What did I see? I saw stamped from the beginning from, okay. uh, again, the same guy, Roger Ross Williams. Um Uh, who I I wrote about, Um, and that's a very good documentary that's on Netflix. It's coming up on Netflix, Uh, uh, and it's based on the book um, by, uh, I want to say, Kendry, is that his name? Yes, something like that,
1: uh, Abraham.
2: It's it's about racism, and he interviews a lot of historians, but he does this extraordinary, it doesn't sound, I'm making it sound boring, he does these amazing animated uh illustrations from and and all this way then and, and he does reenactments it's kind of a hybrid movie uh, it's very well done and i i was very could that uh, be
1: eligible for animation
2: i think it's i don't think it works that way okay. I, I, it, it, it it it's probably just documentary but um Luckily, the documentary branch has become a little more uh, accepting of of this kind of hybrid.
1: And I can't uh, wait to movie. see the Paul Simon documentary, which is three and a it's half been, hours long.
2: It's oh. so great. I still haven't gotten rid of some of these songs. They're in my head like worms, mm. you know? Yeah, well,
0: that's well, that's, that's what he's dark. known dark. for. Yeah. Did you see The Beast by Bertrand Bonello?
2: Oh, my, Ryan, my colleague, Latanzio thought that was extraordinary.
0: It's one of those films where you're like, I... Can't really describe it because it's kind of about LA and it stars Lea Seydoux and George McCain a near future, distant past, recent past, current day, world, all hinged on this artificial intelligence. I I, I tried to describe it as David Lynch and David Cronenberg got together and adapted a short story by Christopher Nolan. Wow. Just unhinged
1: and just, I don't know. Well,
0: but, uh...
1: <laughs> S- Sperling, you got one minute left with Anne, so give her your last question before we say goodbye.
0: That was my last question, was whether she saw The Beast. Well, actually, did you see any of the Ladge Lee stuff? Because, the, you know, the, the whole... Well,
2: Laj Lee's going however you say that, It's it's so good and i thought really stood up to the level of his last movies that les miserables i it's going to be uh, you're right yeah uh, michael it's going to be very interesting what, what what france decides to to pick they if year. i were France, i would pick the taste of things and go old-fashioned that's with got it.
1: oscar written all over it for the for I the older voters
2: now she's yeah, in it and she's so good and food you know?
1: food it's the it's the babette's Food's feast
2: glorious food yes <laughs>
1: Oh, God, that movie keep, was amazing. keep our
2: Oliver theme going.
0: <laughs> that movie was so good, The Taste of Things. I loved that movie. I know the French hated it. I don't know why. They hated it, and everybody else...
2: How do you know they hated it? Oh, From- sorry.
0: I should say, in Cannes, the French critics were like, it's just another, you know, just a food porn. And I was like, <laughs> yes. yeah. More, please, <laughs> please, sir. May I have another?
2: <laughs> and then, the, and then Frederick Wiseman had the four-hour version of it. You know, yeah. with, 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 I I was watching the uh, screener they gave me, and every night I would watch this movie, and it would make me go.
1: <laughs> What's his topic? What's his topic?
2: A four-star Michelin restaurant. Oh, right. It's very similar. You see them go out and get the vegetables and the and the fruit and the, awesome. And you see them planning and it's, it's on a big scale, a big, a big Michelin restaurant, contemporary. And it's, but he takes these long, long, long shots of everything, you know, going on and on and on. And you're just like, off I would go to dreamland.
0: That's Frederick
2: Requestman. <laughs> oh, it's four hours long.
1: Can't wait to see it.
2: <laughs>
0: well, Anne, as always, it's always great to speak with you. And certainly after, you know, Telluride in Toronto and, and certainly after the Academy Awards, we look forward to keeping up with you during this year's very interesting uh,
1: awards season.
2: Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. All right. Bye, guys.
1: Well, it's always great to catch up with Anne. Hopefully she'll be back at Con next year.
0: Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking, she, she talked about the Lodge Lee film. Uh, there was. It seemed like a bit of a theme at Toronto this year. I was not there. I was covering remotely, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and not, not planned to cover remotely. Uh, but uh, I did notice that movies like After the Fire by Mehdi Firky, uh, I, I know I just pronounced that wrong, Mehdi uh, Fikri is probably the way to pronounce that. It's a uh, film about how set in France, but kind of how Arabs are pretty much wrongly Treated, you know, and immigrants are wrongly treated in, in the justice system there. Uh, and there was a, a movie called Sisterhood or HLM Pussy, which is kind of a, a slang word, uh, a kind of slang in, in France, directed by Nora El uh And I hope I'm pronouncing that word right, uh, uh, that name right. Uh, three teenage girls, they're best friends, uh, but kind of a, a little incident, and I say that kind of in quotes, takes place uh, sexual assault potentially. Uh, and it kind of underscores the, all the differences they have in their race and their, their social standing and their privilege. Uh, that was uh, also very well done. Uh, the Beast we already talked about. Two documentaries I wanted to talk to you about, mm-hmm. Michael. One is, you know, we've been seeing documentaries now for two years about Ukraine because of video, the, the, uh, the, you know, this digital video. You can make a documentary, you could shoot it in March and it can premiere in can in May which we saw last year mm-hmm. with Mariupol 2, uh, Mariupolis 2. Uh, this year, uh, we're seeing documentaries, at least one, Defiant, by Kamir Amer, who produced The Square in 2013 about Tahrir Square in Egypt. It, these documentaries are from the vantage point of the ministers. Uh, and this one, Defiant, the access they had was incredible. They're with the foreign minister, uh, Dimitri, Dimitro... Kuleba, and I hope I pronounced that correct. He is the Ukrainian foreign minister. He's actually flying back to the Ukraine after meeting with Biden on the eve of, literally, the eve of the war. He flies back as Russia is invading, mm-hmm. and you're, they're with them for for the first like six months of the, this war. And they decided to
1: ha- talk, you know, cover this actor turned, uh, you know, president before all that happened. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's remarkable this movie Uh, and flip side another movie I I was personally interested in this because I'm from New Jersey and it's about a record store in New Jersey sort of it's a documentary by Chris Wiltshire uh, and I hope again I'm pronouncing names correctly uh, but it's kind of about loose threads and creativity and I'm going to read what what uh, this is what IndieWire had to say because I thought this was a great description okay Legendary jazz photographer Herman Leonard, Ira Glass's musical, and a floundering New Jersey used record store, (laughs) all documentaries that never got off the ground that are now mixed together into something even more unique. And it's, you watch this movie and you feel like, you know what, I I think I just, I think this guy just did 30 years of therapy for me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sounds good. Fascinating. Unbelievable! Cool. Well, you know, we talked about uh, the audience winner at Con was at uh, Con was at, at Toronto was American Fiction, and the wake of right. American Fiction winning the audience award, it stars Jeffrey Wright, directed by George C. Wolfe. It's about a uh, 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 person of color, a, an academic who writes a book filled with stereotypes about black people because he's mocking at the idea because that's the only thing that works. And suddenly it becomes a huge bestseller and the craziness goes on from there. Uh, because of that, it's a good moment to remember director Horace Ove, or Ove. He's a trailblazing filmmaker in the UK who in 1976 directed Pressure, that country's first full-length black British film. Uh, Ove, think about that. We had, we had full-length black American films in the silent era. And it wasn't until 1976. Ove also did pioneering work on TV with numerous documentary films and shorts to his credit. A Restored Pressure is debuting at both the London and New York Film Festivals on October 11th, and the BFI is holding a long-planned major respective of his work beginning October 23rd. Sadly, he just died uh, this week at the age of 86. Also dying this week is three-time Emmy winner and daytime soap star Billy Miller. He died at 43. He appeared on General Hospital and All My Children, as well as other TV shows like Suits. But it was a six-year stint on The Young and the Restless that cemented his fame. As happens at daytime TV, he was maybe the seventh of about nine different child and adult actors who have played the spoiled rich kid Billy Abbott so far, on the long-running melodrama The Young and the Restless. He was nominated for six Emmys in all over the years, including five for playing Billy Abbott, and he won three times. He has no credits after 2020, and no cause of death was given, but his management company made a point of stating that he has lived with manic depression for a number of years, so that is very sad to hear. And, you know, you can call or text 988 if you're ever feeling suicidal or need any help. In the United States. In the U.S., that's right. 988. And by the way, there are similar numbers in other countries all over the world and other numbers you can call if you just are dealing with depression it's like high blood pressure which i take pills for or therapy or whatever you need to do uh reach out for help because it's an illness like any others that you can get help for uh on a happier note, happier uh, larry chance the lead singer of doo-wop group the earls he worked all his life in music he died at the age of 82 that's the good news all his life The group was one of the early white doo-wop groups to have success on the charts with songs like Remember and I Believe. Uh, Basically, they never went away, with Chance also doing solo shows that incorporated comedy, writing some songs, voicing characters on the Don Imus radio show. He grew up in South Philly, which was also the home of Chubby Checker, Frankie Avalon, and even opera singer Mario Lanza. Their first recording was the single Life is But a Dream, Uh, that's obviously a a cover, and it came out in 1961. More than 60 years later, his last public performance was a duet with Billy Vera, you remember him from Family Ties, Uh, and they sang together on Stand By Me at a high school in White Plains, New York. That's not sad, that's kind of cool, singing right up to the end. And finally, a favorite of mine, and I didn't even know his name, uh, the Oscar-nominated visual effects artist Pete Kozachik dies at 72. He was a giant of stop-motion animation his imagination was sparked as a kid when Kozachik saw a photo of the legendary Ray Harryhausen at work on the film The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. The kid suddenly realized with a jolt that the creatures in the movie, they're like on a table and the guy is leaning over them. And he thought, I could do that. And he started making his own stop motion animation shorts in the sixth grade. Now he went on to become a teacher. But at the same time, he was making industrial shorts and commercials and cartoons in his spare time, as well as directing shows for a local TV station. Finally, he said enough of this. And he packed up and he moved to Hollywood and he worked his way up to industrial light and magic. And he was overseeing commercials like the Pillsbury Doughboy which I never thought about it, but he's stop motion animation and the scrubbing bubbles and Mr. Clean. Soon he was working on everything from Howard the Duck to Willow to Star Trek movies and even some RoboCop sequels. And that's when he began his collaboration with director Henry Selleck, Tim Burton and others doing his most enduring work. He was the DP and received an Oscar nomination for visual effects for the Henry Selleck classic titled Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. You want to be a classic, make sure you cover two holidays. You can watch it at Halloween and Christmas. Very smart. He also did brilliant work on James and the Giant Peach, uh, Tim Burton's Corpse Bride, and Coraline, which I think is just a masterpiece as well. It's such a good movie. Now, Nightmare Before Christmas, that was before they had uh, a Best Animated Film category. It's the only uh, award it got uh, nomination, I should say, though it should have been up for Best Score, Best Song, and Best production design. It lost best visual effects to Jurassic Park, so uh, you well, can see you, hard you can that. see that one coming. But that's a shame. But yeah. great work. And if you want to celebrate Pete, for God's sakes, go watch Nightmare Before Christmas again, or James and the Giant Peach, which has great music by Randy Newman and Coraline, which is just a treat. So he did work that really, you know, would have made Ray Harryhausen proud. I mean, childhood dream uh, completed. What was your childhood dream, uh, Sperling?
0: To, uh, you know, host a, an entertainment news podcast. Done. So I'm, <laughs> I'm living, I am literally living the dream. You
1: are living the dream. Well, <laughs> people aren't in a dream. It is the end of the show and they're just waking up. So uh, tell them goodbye. <laughs> probably literally. Yeah, yeah, probably.
0: <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, don't miss our next uh, episode. So subscribe to us in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Spotify, Apple podcast, wherever they give podcasts their way for free, wherever you get your podcasts, you can usually find us. And please, in any one of those aggregators that allows you to do so, rate and review the show. It helps us out when you do that. And I'd like to thank Ann Thompson, who has her own podcast, Screen Talk. So look that up as well. Uh, and she, uh, of course, joined us just moments ago. Uh, and I'd like to thank you for taking the time out uh, to join us. It was uh, it's always special to speak with her. We'll place links to all of her work in our show notes, which can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com, which, by the way, is where you can find those ways to subscribe to us or contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D I R T at showbizsandbox.com. We're also on a voicemail, and this time I remember the number. It's (laughs) 888 567 SAND. That's 888 567 7263. We're on Twitter at showbizsandbox, is our handle. And we're on Facebook. Facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. And yes, I know Twitter should be called X. I keep forgetting. Uh, The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website. Who is? MGMT.com. Michael Giltz uh, has a website every week. It's something new
1: and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week, it's rayharryhausen.com. Yes, it exists. Check out his stuff. Uh, And is there a show this week? Yes. Okay, great.
0: And if you want to check out some of Michael's work, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his entertainment news coverage and and writing is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice.